Good evening, everyone, and everybody listening. This is Category Is Dragcast Extravaganza on NYU's 89.1. I am Connie Lingus. Except I'm not. I'm not actually. Connie's not with us for this intro, unfortunately, due to some editing issues, but I am. So I'd be making a funny joke about my name normally. I'm not. Let's just move on with it. This is the full version of the interview with Jackie Cox. So if you're here from 89.1, then congrats. You're with the real deal quality stuff. We hope you enjoy. Our guest today is a singer, dancer, actor, writer, and NYC drag queen known for her work off-Broadway and at the Lori Beachman Theater. I'm happy to have with me today Jackie Cox. Hello. Hi. Oh my goodness. I feel so honored already because you consider me a dancer. I would I would I would say advanced mover at best, but <laughs> well I'll take it. If you work with a choreographer, you gotta be a dancer, I think. Sure. I like how that intro is actually justified because usually when you hear singer, dancer, actor, writer all in the same phrase, it's an unemployed college kid's Instagram bio. <laughs> well <laughs> I was one of those ones too. So That is true. You know, we all come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yes. So Speaking of beginnings, you've talked in the past about how performing in Hedwig Hedwig and the Angry Inch was your gateway into the drag world, and that performing in drag outside of shows was something that came later. Was this transition something that came naturally for you, or was there some difficulty to it? Well, it's a very specific thing that happened, which was that uh, a friend of mine, who actually was my neighbor, was producing a off-Broadway drag competition, So You Think You Can Drag, um, at New World Stages, and said, I want you to compete. And I said, I've never done this before, like drag outside the context of a show um, that had already been written by someone else and scripted by someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I said, and he said, no, 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 you can definitely do it. Um, and so I just, I just decided to do it. And so Jackie Cox was born on the on on the stage at New World Stages um, in 2010, when you guys were still in middle school. So how's that? Oof, that's Gangnam Style wasn't a thing yet for reference. <laughs> it wasn't a thing, you know. I, 2010, I, we were still listening to Teo Cruz. I still when I spoke okay, out this this will really age me up. When I first started doing drag, we used to have to burn CDs to bring to the club. Oh wow! For the DJ to play our music. Huh. I don't even have a CD player, much less a CD burner anymore. I had to buy a CD player because I'm like an old school dude who likes to like make physical like mixtapes for people. Sure. And MacBooks these days just don't have the CD player. So it's like, well, it's funny you say old school mixtapes. When I was old school, it was, it was they were actual cassette. tapes. Yeah. Um, but you know, hey, every every generation goes through a technological change in mine. Mine happened to be much more convenient for me because now I just carry around a little USB that I just keep adding music onto. So that's been great. Um, but the transition, I guess, from being more of a, um, I guess, to answer your question in a more realistic way, you know, performing in theater, which was kind of my background, was always something I loved. I love working on characters. I love creating the story. I love telling a story um, through acting, you know, either through scripted works or through improv. You know, I did improv as well in college. Um What's amazing about drag is it can be, first of all, whatever you want. And for me specifically, it gave me the opportunity to actually create it all. 
you know, I get to be the director, the choreographer, the scenic designer, the costume designer, or to outsource those to whomever I want if I want to. You know, I've definitely worked with amazing directors and choreographers as well. But just that ability to take everything I've learned in the theater and then become kind of your own producer. Mm -hmm. And it's all really drag is, you know, at its essence, especially New York City drag is self-produced. You know, I mean, there are sure, I'm sure there's some queens who their drag mother told them every single thing they needed to learn and they just walked out on stage and someone held their hand. But I would say majority of the time, you're the one putting the most work in. And that's certainly something that was appealing to me because, you know, you, you, you get out what you put in. So that was really exciting for me and kind of helped the transition for me because, you know, theater is a business and it can be a really daunting business. Um, and drag can be a daunting business as well. The difference is so many things are outside of your control in theater. You don't know if you're the right type for the show they're casting. You don't know, you know, if you're the right height. Forget, you know, anything else. It's like, if do you, do you even have all the requirements? Whereas drag, you kind of set the parameters. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really exciting for me. Um, to take everything I've learned in theater and then transition them into my own self-produced work. Cool. So you've already kind of started to talk on the creative process, and you've done a number of both solo shows and collaborative shows as a drag queen, uh, frequently collaborating with other NYC greats, such as Paige Turner and Chelsea Piers. Do you prefer one type of experience to another? Um, And if you don't have a preference what are the advantages and disadvantages of each well i'll say this no matter what is happening unless you are building the stage yourself and lighting it yourself and pressing play yourself which has never happened to me you're always working with other people mm. so so even in my what i would call my solo shows you know it's always a collaboration even with even if it's just with a dj let's look at this set list let's let's look through this together let's see what the night's going to feel like you know or or something scripted you know i in my scripted what i'd call solo shows but really have two other really important people in them which are the i dream of jackie series you know i, I wrote them and i wrote them with these boys in mind and then really look to my director, Blake, to kind of be that sounding board. Um, And when you work on something collaborative where you don't have a director, you kind of all can kind of take those parts. So, you know, when I work with Paige Turner, it's very much we've now worked together for almost 10 years um, and and we kind of have a rhythm and it's really fun to play with that, see what new things we can discover with each other, things we hadn't played before. Um, So I would say if I have a preference, it's always to work with other people and Anyone who says they do it all alone, uh, I I don't know who they are. They must be some kind of magician because you're you're never alone. You're never alone. And and even if you are alone on the stage, you're working with the audience. You know, as a live medium, you know, I'm I'm working with the people who are directly in front of me. I'm feeding off of their energy. So I love the collaborative aspect of it. Um, And those can and kind of all of the shapes and shades of that. So it, it can go from very collaborative we're sitting and writing a script together and parsing out every detail of a show to you know you're doing a number and then i'm doing a number and then you're doing a number what kind of a flow do we want and we just kind of go from there um i love that and i love getting to know people that way you Mm kind of learn um fun things about them and coming from that school of theater where you're kind of always told you know acting isn't about saying something it's about listening and Mm -hmm. that that holds true for drag or anytime you're sharing an artistic space with someone which is so exciting to actually listen to them 
feel what their energy is and then add that to yours and then you share what your energy is with, back with them which is so exciting for me gotcha. sounds like a really good way to make the show because then if you're collaborating in the creation of it then you have somebody to cover up for your own weaknesses that you might have in the creation process and your own strengths get to be exacerbated and i mean that being said when it comes to you creating a show in this collaborative effort are there any parts of this creative process that really stand out for you that you come naturally to you? And alternatively, is there anything that you kind of struggle with a little? <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's uh, yeah, we'll start with the struggle because it's funny you said I'm a dancer because that's the one thing that I'm like, the movement I can completely outsource. I'm like, that, that's someone, you know, if it's especially if I'm, if I'm with Chelsea, you know, she's much more of a dancer than I am. And I'm like, all right, Chelsea, what's our choreography? And if it gets too hard, I'm like, can we dumb this down a little? I mean, I, I can do a sensible step touch, uh, you know, and I, I, I've, I've definitely moved around, but I, I'm not a, you know, I can't do a triple turn. I can't do a right. They would rather have a, a, a clean single than a messy double, uh, a messy uh double right i can definitely can't do a triple mm -hmm. so uh, that's something i definitely will outsource uh, at least within in, in the creative process um things i love i love even though i'm not much of a sewer but i love the costuming process i love creating a color story i love working with my fellow drag queens to kind of come up with cohesive looks you know even if we're all in our own things just to make sure they look together i'm the one who's always like nope we're pulling out all the dresses we're wearing we're going to look at them next to each other we're going to see how they look together and we're going to make adjustments i love the costume process um, especially in the kind of more scripted things where we get to tell a story through not just what we're saying and doing but through the the visual medium of drag as well. So, uh, yeah, that's those are probably the two things that I gravitate more, most most quickly towards, and then the thing I'm like, ah, got you. Uh, you've actually brought up this name already, uh, Blake, who is your college friend, full name Blake McIntyre. He's been your director for a few of your shows. Yeah, Blake McIver. Yeah. Yes, Mike. Yes, my. I apologies. was <laughs> I was looking at the paper and it says McIver, and I'm like, okay, I didn't know that the name was. In invisible ink, but fine. Yeah, I'm a bad reader occasionally. My apologies. But uh, yes, Blake MacGyver. Uh, so yes, you've, you've worked with him as choreographer and a director. So for those that don't know, Blake was a child star. He, he was. I, Recovering child star, he likes to say. Yes. I guess my question to you is, did you grow up watching the TV shows and movies that he was a part of? Totally. And what's really funny, I think he knows this, but my family used to tell me that I rem remind them of him, you know, because he was kind of the like sassy gay kid. And mm -hmm. I definitely was as well. Um, so it's very funny to me that like we ended up meeting on the first day of college and, you know, became fast friends. Um you know, he's someone who's so special to me. Uh, and, you know, now knowing him for, God, 12, 13 years, you know, we've really grown through this chapter of adulthood together. Uh, you know, we've gone through young adulthood, and now I guess we're nearing that middle adulthood phase of life. Um, and he's someone I can always depend on and trust and count on. And, you know, I, I think vice versa as well. That's really sweet. I'm also kind of curious as to, like, when you met him and saw him, did you like put two and two together immediately? Like, wait, I I've seen this person before, or was just this something that came up out of the blue one day? I'm pretty sure I knew right away. You're taking it back. So this was 2003 <laughs> um, when I first met Blake. 2003. 
And I'm pretty sure I saw him from across the way. And I think he he had on, you know, his glasses and his hair was done kind of the same way as it was his whole, like, childhood Mm -hmm. acting career. I was like, oh, my God, that's that kid that everyone used to tell me that I remind them of. (laughs) Oh, and we're in the same theater program. Oh, and, you know, I'm going to sit right next to him and, like, you know, decide that we're the best of friends. And I kind of... Uh, I won't say force myself upon him, but I kind of was just like, nope, we're going to get along. I've decided. And he just kind of went along with it, um, you know. Uh, and something that he always it, it says to me, which makes me feel, you know, like, wow, I can't even believe that this ever happened is, you know, he's like, I always had that confidence as an out gay man mm-hmm. um, since I was 16. You know, I, 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 I would you know, strut down my high school hallway with like a rainbow t-shirt on and a boa, mm-hmm. you know, uh, whereas he didn't have that. So I think he was, you know, whereas I was like, oh my God, this is a cool, fabulous person who's done all these amazing things. And I was like, this is so interesting. I think he felt, he felt the same way about me. He's like, oh my God, this person is so sure of themselves, um, which I which I was for better or worse. I think I've, I've, uh, I've learned to <laughs> be a little more humble uh, as I've gotten a little older, but I remember when you know when I was eighteen, I thought I can do no wrong. I can I'm I'm the you know I don't know. I guess I was I just kind of walked around like I owned the place um, a little bit, which I think he was very surprised by that someone who in a way was like him could be so confident and hopefully that we kind of balanced each other out that way. That's it's really nice to hear. I think the best friendships are. people that are not exactly the same they have just the amount of traits that the other person have that like really brings out the best in each other i think yeah and and i'll say this you know for all of your listeners out there who are still in college which i'm assuming is most of them but hey um (laughs) you never know or maybe you want to go back to college i mean this is the chance for you to make those friendships to make those mistakes to forgive each other to love each other to 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 create things together um i can't tell you how many silly ideas blake and i had when we were in college that came to life, including Jackie Cox was a character that we had created back in college. Um, and, and you know, the ability for me to bring her to life now for almost 10 years has been the most rewarding thing to me creatively, but it all just happened from goofing around with your friend, um, you know. And, and it, the one thing that I, I know is so different for all of us um, and certainly for, um, you know, people in college you know young adults in college is we didn't have like we had like texting but mm-hmm. it wasn't like it was still flip phones you know back in 2003 so we weren't really on our phones much so a lot of it was that in-person connection that that real kind of struggle together in real life um you know and we had some social media but it certainly isn't what it is today so wherever you are if you're listening to this you're already a step a step above and beyond because just listening to someone's actual human voice I think is uh, an amazing skill that so often you know we we get stuck in texts and we lose a lot of the humanity um you know radio is an amazing medium for cluing into emotion and the voice and you know the voice is the outward manifestation of the soul yeah um so uh, you know kudos to all your listeners for listening because you are participating in the human experience Thank you for the plug, I guess. I'll take it. That's probably the most satisfying back-in-my-day moment I've ever actually heard where I don't feel condescended to. No, please. I mean, and, and, and when I was, you know, 18, my dad was like, oh, well, we didn't have any kind of phone. You had to, like, I don't know, 
knock on their door, write a letter, yeah. or like wait outside by a payphone if you wanted to contact someone, you know. And it was all about setting up meeting times, mm-hmm. um, you know. So technology is going to change, and in you know, in another ten years, it'll be something totally different that kids are doing. But as long as you can still find those connections, especially in this time of your life, uh, it will, it will, it will help you throughout the rest of whatever you do next. Awesome. So to shift gears a little bit. Oh, you don't like my advice? <laughs> my no, advice column over no, here. No, I love your advice <laughs> column, but you seem to know you seem to have a lot of really good opinions about things, so we want to oh. spread the mix as to what we could get your opinions oh, on. Oh yeah, I'll tell you anything. So last week uh we spoke with Honey Davenport. Port Port. I don't She know. corrected you and, on the podcast and, and you still mess it up. I think it could be the French pronunciation. Honey Davenport. Yeah, yeah but she said that the it was a hard T because there's a lot of T. So, I mean. And she also said there's nothing about French. Uh, there's nothing poor about her. Oh, <laughs> but something French, I'm sure. We'll, yeah. we'll discover it. It may be her hairy armpits. Yes. I love you, honey. So, we were talking with Honey Davenport last week uh, about racism within the drag community and yeah. how, in general, it's still an issue. Mm-hmm. So have you found that the drag community has been accepting of you being someone of Middle Eastern descent? Or have you faced um, your own issues with racism as well? I'll start this from the inside, which is that uh, as someone who's half Middle Eastern, you know, and half very white, Mm -hmm. um, for better or worse, I have almost any and all of the white privilege walking down the street that, you know, any other white person does. Um, And and. There have been very few and few moments in my life where I've been confronted face on with racism. That being said, when I first started drag, you know, I had to confront a little bit of internalized racism um, in the sense that I didn't embrace any of my Middle Eastern heritage um, when I started doing drag. Uh, if you go back to old photos or videos of me, it was, you know, it was, you know, I was only doing, you know, Disney princesses and not even Princess Jasmine at that. Right. So mm-hmm. it's. Um, uh, I I thought that that was something I just could never connect with my art, um, and it really wasn't until you know the election of uh, he who shall not be named. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming most of your listeners don't love him. Uh, most people at this school don't love him. Well, that's good. <laughs> good job, NYU. This little eight million population sect of people um, <laughs> yeah. in general feels that certain way. Yeah, and and when he was elected, you know that was a that actually. Uh, directly affected my family um uh, i talked about this a little bit but you know my my mom was very sick at the time and my aunt who lives in iran you know was banned from traveling whereas just the year prior she was able to come visit um you know and when my mom really needed her you know this racist policy kind of turned itself on us so when it comes to the drag community you know it, 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 you get out what you put in. You know, I've started to incorporate more of my my truth as, you know, someone of Iranian heritage into my drag, um, which was really scary for me. Uh, it was scary for me to kind of actually embrace that part of myself, knowing that it's a, it's a country where you can still be killed for being gay. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was something that I had to face inside first before I could face it outside. That being said, you know, direct racism in the drag community uh, is a real thing. It's a real thing, especially for, you know, our, 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 um, you know, Latin, Latin X and, um, black sisters. 
um, who don't get the same amount of gigs, who don't, you know, in the RuPaul's Drag Race world, don't have the same lines, the meet and greets, who don't have that same rabid fan base, um, you know, and it's really the exceptions who make it that far. Uh, I, I, I think it's something that as a country, you know, it's, it's, it's merely a reflection of the greater racism that happens in our country. Mm-hmm. And I think we all now have the ability to see it more. It always existed, but now, you know, the one thing that we with social media get is the ability to see things more quickly so we can now see that more we can see people you know being active on twitter and angry about a black ariel in a little mermaid we see that whereas before that may have happened and no one really knew who was upset about it and who wasn't Mm -hmm. um you know i will say of the few times i've ever directly encountered racism was walking home from DragCon uh, two years ago. I went in a gold, um, uh, I, I Dream of uh, Genie kind of inspired um, yeah. Arabian outfit uh, or Persian outfit, if you will. And uh, as I'm walking home in full drag, you know, drag makeup, it, this is a very exaggerated person. Um, I'm walking home and, and some man from across the street just starts yelling at me, go back to your country, um, hmm. which was so jarring for me because in my day-to-day life I never encounter that kind of racism. Was this in New York? This was in New York right outside because of Javits that, Center. That's not the sort of thing you would typically I mean it's not to say that you wouldn't expect it to happen in the country but you wouldn't normally expect that in Manhattan. And I'm wearing sequins right? It's like, yeah, it's, like it's you know this this person's obviously first of all they, they're a very sad person so I feel mostly sorry for them but secondly like a, a little bit of a dumb person too in the sense that this is not actually authentic yeah. Um, a, a apparel I'm wearing. I'm wearing sequin harem pants. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was an, that was an example of direct racism I encountered. But there's other things too. When I'm with my Persian friends, or you know, speaking on the phone with my family in Farsi, you know, which is uh, the language of Iran, um, you know, I definitely get looks. Um, I've been told, you know, uh, I was told once, um, you know, oh, I didn't know you would you 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 spoke that language. You know, back where I'm from. You know, like this this person says this like it makes it better. Yeah. He's like, we would call people like you a sand N-word. Mm. And I was like, I'd never heard that term before. Um, uh, you know, and I guess I'm, again, the privilege of yeah. appearing white enough to not hear that um, it is, was something that, you know, stuck with me. And even though he, he said it as if just like a matter of fact, like, oh, we would call your, your kind a sand N-word. Um, it, it like... The, the friend I was with, she, like, was, she's, you know, she visibly burst into tears, and I didn't know what to do in that moment, because I, I guess I'd been so lucky that I'd never dealt with that. Yeah. Um, but it's real, and it exists, and it exists inside the drag community and outside the drag community, and all we can do is recognize as much privilege as we have, use it for good, um, and, and recognize our own biases, and just really work against them um you know if you had friends who posted um oh i don't like that there's a black ariel like i would encourage you to message them and talk to them about it and 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 help them get to the root of why they feel that way Mm -hmm. because those feelings come from a place a lot of it's outside of ourselves right our society has this institutionalized racism and anything that expresses that as simply a manifestation of what we've all been taught. You know, yeah. we've been taught that the skinny blonde girl is the ideal. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why 
those queens who exemplify those ideals get the longer lines of the meet and greets. Yeah. So we all have to work against that, just like we have to work against, you know, thinking that Barbie is the is the epitome of, of any sort of beauty standard. Yeah. It's sort of interesting that you bring that up specifically because everybody comes from such different own little societal bubbles. I mean, I can't speak for my co-host. I don't believe that it was the same there. But I grew up in a community where it was a, yes, it was like very, very white, but there was relatively low income inequality. So we didn't really see the effects of racism that you would see across the country. So it was kind of instinct to dismiss it when you hear about it, like, oh, that's not actually an issue. And the problem is that so many people come from so many different places that it's like you go to a different spot of the country and it's like an entire different, entirely different world. Totally. Um, I, I spent a, a good amount of my formative years in Milwaukee, which mm -hmm. is one of the most segregated cities in the country um, from both a race and a, um, economic perspective. Um, and I'd moved there from San Francisco, which is a total melting pot of all different sorts of people. Yep. Um, so to go to a city that was so segregated and kind of that was built into the culture and the structure of the city of you don't go to this street if you're white or you don't go to this street if you're black. Um, was such a culture shock to me. I was um, uh, 12, and I had never seen anything like that. Um, and when you don't see something, it's not real. Yeah. Um, it's, so all of us need to open our eyes as much as we can. It's demoralizing to learn that it's not like how you learn in school where it's like Martin Luther King defeated racism and we were all happy after that. It's... It's sad to learn that it's it didn't end that simply, or that Barack Obama defeated racism. Yeah, you know, I think I think it it it, it still it, it still keeps going, and you know, right? The what do they say? The 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 arc of justice is um is curved, but it bends towards you, someone else. You 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 smart people probably know. What it I, is. I know ex exactly the quote, and I can't finish it because I'm bad at memorizing quotes. But I yeah, the moral arc is long, but it bends towards justice. Yeah, that sounds that's, right. That sounds familiar to me. So I think you know we're still on that journey, and for certainly for our lifetimes, we will be. You know, and I include you folks who are a good twelve years, thirteen years younger than me in that. Um, you know, it's going to be for the rest of our lives something that all of us as you know, citizens of the earth will have to work work on, um, and it and it's just and it's going to grow and change, and we're going to learn more, and we have to keep keep fighting that fight, um, and just keep recognizing it. And the most important thing I've learned is just to listen. When I have uh, sisters, you know, you're on Facebook going on rants about this, that, or the other thing that happened to them at this bar that, you know, they feel very strongly was motivated by race. That's not the time to jump in and say, are you sure that I don't think that really happened that way? You know, just listen to them, L listen to their truth. Yeah. Um, and that's the most important thing you can do as someone who has privilege. And we all have some kind of privilege. So recognize that and then use it for what you can. Gotcha. So you talked about how you kind of came to terms with almost your own identity as somebody who's half Middle Eastern and then incorporated that into how you do drag. Um, Exactly how do you incorporate it now? Is there a specific something specific that stands out about it or Yeah, I mean the, the, the I Dream of I Dream of Jackie series, which is a series of three kind of off Broadway shows I did, actually kind of took this, you know, a version of myself that, you know, really is a Persian genie, um, you know, 
for those of your listeners who never mm-hmm. watched it, uh, I Dream of Genie, which is what it's based on, um, was the story of a Persian genie. Um, in the 60s, uh, you have to remember, Iran was one of the U.S.'s closest allies. Mm-hmm. So Persian culture was actually kind of, um, uh, of uh, in the fashion, if you will. And granted, Barbara Eden is not remotely Persian at all. Yep. Um, but the, the idea was that, you know, uh, the Persian culture was something that, you know, Americans were kind of embracing as kind of this fun, you know, exoticized foreign culture. Um, you know, a little known fact, and we can get to Disney in a bit, is yes. that the original plans for Epcot included uh, a, a Persia pavilion. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you think that was in 82, right, that Epcot opened, that how much changed, right, by the time Epcot opened where, you know, and still today where we may, you know, at some point go to war with Iran. Um, so for me, you know, to incorporate the, these bits of, you know, my culture, words and Farsi, actually talking about kind of what the Trump ban on uh, travelers from Muslim-majority countries has done to me and my family and others and refugees was something I really wanted to kind of tell in the storytelling of the I Dream of Jackie series. Um, you know, and that is as serious as actually, you know, doing a, a, a song about the Syrian refugee crisis. Um, or as playful as in the third installment, I Dream of Jackie, Jackie's Winter Wish, I talk about uh, the Persian traditions of the winter solstice and talk about, you know, what that means to me and my family and kind of connecting that to our broader kind of westernized secular Christmas stories, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and those kind of beautiful through lines of where the, you know, the, the winter solstice, which is the darkest, coldest time of the year, and so many cultures has all of these wonderful, wonderful traditions where you bring the warmth back to your life. And whether that's through Christmas or through Hanukkah or through those traditions that bring the warmth out of the coldest and longest night of the year. And the same thing is true with uh, the Shabbat Yalda tradition, which I talk about in I Dream of Jackie 3. So really just kind of connecting pieces of, you know, what I'll say is my mostly white secular audience to these parts of my family and history um, and even learning about more of those things myself that maybe I didn't grow up in a super, you know, uh, conservative family, but actually bringing, bringing those things to light um, was really fun for me. So that's kind of like how I did it. If mm. you want that, the long version of that answer. God, I'm long winded here. Um, no, that's awesome answer. And it's awesome to get your perspective on all that stuff. Since you brought up Disney, <laughs> we'll get to the Disney conversation. Let's do it. Grill me. So anyone that's aware of you should know that you're a huge Disney fan. Total nerd. You've rocked a lot of classic looks. You came here with a Disney Disney store toad on you. I I did. I did. So there's been a lot of these live action remakes Mm. of the animated films. So I ask you, as someone that has took pleasure and had fun. You can say it. Obsessed. Obsessed with <laughs> like a- adapting these looks for your drag. Do you ever find yourself comparing your looks to the live action counterparts and being like, hmm, you know, Emma Watson, like I, I did that better. Uh, no, because I don't really think of that like my drag like that at all you know um it's it's rare i mean i guess i won't say that rare anymore because i've I've now been doing it a few times that i'm like really going for like a super super authentic look you know my my face is my face i have such strong features you know and i think in drag they they become what they become and there's small things i can do to tweak them but i'm certainly don't have you know the kind of face that can transform into anyone or any woman Mm -hmm. um 
I, what I'll say about those live action movies is I think, you know, uh, first and foremost, let's call them what they are, which is a cash grab. Yes. Which, you know, Disney's a publicly traded company and they have the rights to make as much money as they can. Um, so good for them. Um, on the emotional side, right, you know, these are characters that I and I, I'm, I'm sure most of your audience has some emotional connection to, right? It connects to our childhood, mm-hmm. connects to some of our first kind of understandings of family, of what's right and wrong, yep. of kind of themes that are maybe broader than our own life. Um, you know, and the music, right? Music also can really emotionally connect you to something. So on that on that end, you know, sometimes it's like, wow, that was cool what they did with this music or this something that I was connected to emotionally. Or, you know, on the flip side, it's like, hmm, I wouldn't have done that. Um, you know, I think Aladdin is a really interesting example um, in the sense that you, you take a movie um, which had a, you know, all white vocal cast, yep. right? Um, and, 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 you, and you actually kind of fix that mistake of casting people of color. Um, which I think was the, the the most important thing that needed to happen with that telling of the story. Yes, and then from there it's a stylistic choice, you know. So then I think that the choice to make Jasmine uh, a character who is more independent, who has a point of view, who mm-hmm. wants something more than just to find a cute guy that she actually likes. I think yeah. that 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 that's a stylistic choice that I think is strong and important for you know where we are today. But you know, Will Smith, like, how can he? really live in the footsteps of robin williams i don't know it's hard because he's will smith is 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 not a a, a, can't can't do remotely what robin williams could do with his voice you know and so what impossible shoes to fill i think you know he did the best he could i think you know he's not the greatest singer but i actually found myself really caring about him by the end of it so you know it worked on me uh would i go see it again and again probably not um uh i don't i don't I love kind of bringing to life those moments. I think I, you know, there's elements of the animated movies that I will always love because they're kind of connected to these, you know, subconscious and deep feelings of childhood and that inner child that still lives within me. Um, And then kind of some of them are fun and some of them I I have either haven't seen or didn't care about. You know, I didn't see the Dumbo movie. I don't even know if I care about this Lion King movie. Oh no! When I first heard about the Lion King movie, I thought it was going to be like, the actual actors dressing up in costumes. Like the musical? Which yeah, would be fun. exactly. I want to see John Oliver dressed up as a bird. What can I say? <laughs> but <laughs> unfortunately, I'm not that lucky. Yeah. Uh, I, I think those those movies have been, like, fine. Sure. Just kind of fine. Uh, so so my, of, like, the of the Disney... Yeah, Renaissance... what's, what's your opinion? This is uh, your talk show. I've been yakking a lot. No, no. I mean, you're the guest, so we have to have you talk, but... I will say this: uh, my Disney Renaissance film is Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, and that live-action movie didn't do it for you. Not at all. No, a- no, no. A- Emma Emma Watson can't sing. She can't. I I think as, she's gonna, very pretty. Yes, she is very pretty. But if you're gonna adapt, uh, if you're gonna adapt these for live action and keep the musical aspect. Get someone that could sing, please. Yeah. Um, it's it's it, And this is the thing, you know, that we have to remember about Disney, even more so than it was in the 90s when this renaissance happened, right? So, you know, when Walt Disney died in the late 60s, right, it, the company kind of fell into like a, like a very slow period. Yep. Um, and it really wasn't until the animated renaissance that started in 1989 with The Little Mermaid that people actually 
kind of perked up and was like, oh, yeah, Disney. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, they can actually still make good stuff. You know, so back then when that whole renaissance was happening, you know, as a company, right, they, they, they kind of were on the upswing and felt kind of daring and willing to kind of push the boundaries of what a Disney princess could do, right? If you go from what Ariel is like, you know, in 89, all the way up until Tiana, you know, 10 years later, more than 10 years later, I think that's what a journey in, in just that small amount of time, uh, 15 years later, whatever it was, you know, to go from someone who, who, can, who barely talks half of the movie to someone who, you know, yeah. really just kind of running the show. So since then, right, you know, Disney has become such a conglomerate. They own so many things. They they are beholden to so many shareholders that yeah. all of these decisions are made, you know, in ways that, you, you know, the three of us sitting in a studio in the basement of NYU, you know, <laughs> have no real ability to, you know, wrap our heads around in the sense that you don't even know how many people are making those decisions, right? Yeah. So it's 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 the, the decision to cast someone like Emma Watson as Belle, I'm sure, is something that went through I would guess dozens of people and mm-hmm. dozens of approvals of, yes, this is someone we think will carry the movie. Yes. This is someone we think that will sell tickets. Yes. This, you know, all of these things yeah. that, you know, when you were, when people had kind of written off the company, you yeah. know, in the eighties, they didn't have all those pressures. Right. So that's something that it, it sucks, but you know, then there's other people who will take up those mantles and, and you always have to find that kind of creative spark wherever it is. And there's still people who work for that company who are very creative and who will push the boundaries and who will do cool things and new amazing things. You know, I think the, uh, like I said, I, I, I personally love the changes they made to the Jasmine character. I think that was smart. I think that was um, well thought through and, and then maybe there'll be something nice about the next one. Yeah. We'll see. Maybe maybe Beyonce will just really wow us with her vo- vo- vocal acting. I don't know. Wasn't she in an animated movie already? Maybe. She probably. Uh, nonetheless. Um, so you were a Disneyland kid. I was. I worked there in college. Ooh, actually, what'd you do? I was a and well, and again, I'll use this term loosely: a dancer in the parades. Oh my gosh. Uh huh. Um. So. Which of the other parks have you been to? Uh, I've I've been to the, all the Florida ones, and and I've been to Paris, but I haven't been to any of the ones in Asia, which are something I would love to do one day. So, is there a best park out of all of them? <laughs> That's the magic question. So, here. Well, you know, I'm a Disneyland kid, and and for me, my I will always have an emotional connection to Disneyland. Um, Nostalgia bias is acceptable here. So, so, so you know, and and and. And then we can go by a few other metrics that would make Disneyland um, objectively better, one being the most attractions per square foot. Um, and certainly Fair. in a Magic Kingdom-style park, uh, Disneyland has the most attractions. Um, you know, but but who cares, right? It, it's wherever you grew up and mm. whatever you love the most. I think the castle in Paris was just stunningly beautiful when yep. I saw it. The castle in Florida is just very impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's it's... It's, again, like, the thing about Disney and really what I always try to bring back to my audience and the reason I think when I do songs that are either about Disney or related to Disney or kind of connected to that, why it works for me and my drag and my audience is that there's that emotional connection of childhood, which I always bring back. It's about that connection that Mm -hmm. I want to share on the stage. That That's why, you know, when I sing songs like Disneyland, which is not a Disney song, um, it's about that that connection to this fantasy safe world um, that drag 
is. You yeah. know, drag is that fantasy safe world that now I've created for myself as an adult. Definitely. Yeah, I I I could I've been to all the ones you've been to plus uh Tokyo? Yes, uh, Disney Sea. I did not go to their Magic Kingdom equivalent because I had like enough time to do one or the other and I picked I go with the original park. Um yeah, Disneyland's pretty great. I love that analogy though how it's Disney's just this magical place where you can imagine everything and then that's what drag becomes and that's that's a really interesting inspiration like not even aside from just your various costumes and your personas what you actually take from that it's really interesting to hear about that well and that's and that's you know that's what i want my audience to feel as well that 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 when they see me living my fantasies and my dreams that they'll feel empowered to do whatever that is for them so whether that's singing dancing acting hosting a radio show whatever those dreams are that they had as a child to like make them come to life and and all you really need is that kind of drive and belief in yourself and of course hard work but you you have to at least have the spark before you'll even be motivated to do anything gotcha so we're going to talk about another thing that you're very much on the record a big fan of star trek oh my god such a nerd so we're going to do a little bit of a rapid fire this is where i've got to bow out because i don't know I know next to nothing about Star Trek, so I'll just be That's watching okay. from the sidelines. Let's let's see this. Uh, what is which is your series that you hold close to your heart? I hold Voyager close to my heart because that's the series I watched from beginning to end as it was airing. Okay, um, which is your favorite of the films of any era? Uh, First Contact. Okay, um, let's see. Uh, have you been keeping up with Discovery? And oh yes. What is your opinion on Discovery? Um. Uh, Second season was a nice course correction. Curious now that we've done a big course correction, what we do in season, uh, the next season. So I think um, uh, it's it's TBD because I think they spent basically the last whole season changing the entire plan for the show. And whether that was intentional or not, they really shifted the entire gear. So now I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm invested in these characters. Mm-hmm. I want to know what happens. Um, but I also have no idea what this next season is going to bring. How do you feel about Abrams' Trek? Oh, uh, fine. It, 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 I watched each of those movies once in theaters and had no desire to revisit them again. Yeah. I feel like Beyond is the most, like, Star true, Trek-y? Yeah, most true of the nature. And even then, it's still a little action-y for, like, that series. I feel like, but that's that's a problem most of those movies always had, is that they kind of had to cater to, like, action movie audiences. Like, with the first movie, that's just, like... They went straight sci-fi, and everyone like think that's the worst one of yeah. like, and no one saw it. So, but yeah, you kind of have to make some concessions with the movies. And, and I'll say this about Star Trek: so you know, whereas something like Disney and those kind of fairy tales and that kind of fantasy really a- appeals to my emotional side and kind of that inner child, there was also always a side of me that was very intellectually curious. And Star Trek is where that that side gets to kind of live its version of a fantasy. So whereas the emotional kind of gravitates toward these stories of love and acceptance and family and, you know, I think Star Trek is cool because it stretches your mind in ways into kind of really thinking through, you know, in some cases really complex theories of of science fiction and real science that are brought to life in a medium that are pretty digestible. Um, you know, it's part of why 
you know, Star Trek is something that people don't really gravitate towards until they're at least 12, 13. It's not something that you can really get a good grasp on as a small child. Um, but, you know, I've always had that intellectually curious side of myself. So that was really um, always connected to that. Uh, and yeah, God, n- nerds are awesome. Yep. <laughs> if you're a nerd listening, good for you. <laughs> um, I guess to wrap things up here. On Star Trek or in general? In general. Um, so you won. So you think you could drag. You were on the first season and then you closed it out on one of the last one. I did. Spoilers, but. Well, there's, <laughs> is there even, a, I mean, they did a documentary in the last season, so I guess there we was. We did, yeah. If you watch Shade, Queens of NYC on Fusion, you can see me uh, ruining someone's storyline. Yes. Uh, um, by winning. <laughs> so, you won. For you, does that, like, does that satisfy any, like, desire or need for Drag Race? Or are you still one of those queens that, like, Look, has dr- a longing desire for Drag Race? Dr- drag Race is an amazing opportunity for anyone who gets the chance to do it. I think it's something that will really take whatever it is you do in drag and take it to that next level. So, sure, it's something I would definitely love to do. Um, you know, it's it's it just takes all these things that I've been talking with you guys about and gives me the ability to do them for people not just here in New York but all over the country and maybe all over the world you know so you know if ever I had that opportunity of course would totally do it cool and for a lot of people I mean definitely myself included I don't even live in the city I come out from Long Island every day so for a lot of people for you commuter (laughs) yeah it's it's a suffering process but that's what you got to go through you know it's a painful life but you got to live it (laughs) For a lot of people, they get into drag by watching Drag Race, and that's for some it doesn't end up going beyond that. And there's clearly, as we've learned right here, there's a lot beyond it to learn. There yeah. are some great personalities behind it. How do people? How would somebody who hasn't really gotten the chance to see beyond the Drag Race curtain? How could somebody like that get to see the part of drag that isn't? Just Drag Race. I mean, everyone should know who their local queens are who are not on Drag Race. I Mm -hmm. think that is important for any queer person or person who says they love drag. Um, If you love Drag Race and that's your entry into it, amazing. Like, So then now your next step, you're like, wow, I love this so much. I love what Drag Race is and I love drag. So now you have the chance because in every neck of the woods, there are drag queens and there are drag queens in Long Island. I can give you a list of some shows. You know what I mean? Like you can go find those drag queens out in Long Island and get to know them, get to know what their process is, get to know what things, you know, that motivate them. And some of them you may connect with and some of them you won't just like just like you do to queens that are that are on the show. You know, not every queen that you see on the show, you're like, they're amazing. You know, everyone has their favorites. Yeah. Um, So, you know. The, the biggest thing I can encourage anyone, whether you're interested in drag as something you want to pursue or something that you uh, just want to be a more well-rounded fan, is to find that drag that's outside of Drag Race. And if your audience isn't 21 yet, you'll get there. Don't worry. It's coming soon. <laughs> uh, even if they're not 21, there are ways. Um... I've got a few months still. <laughs> I can't comment on any illegal activity that any of your audi- audience may or may not participate in. Of course. But nonetheless, so... It's been a pleasure talking with you. Uh, if people are interested in seeing you or learning more about you or keeping up with you, where can they do such things? Yeah, I'm, I'm across all social media at Jackie Cox NYC. 
Um, Jackie, spelled the regular way, <laughs> J-A-C-K-I-E, and Cox, spelled like my mother's, Deborah, Courtney, and Laverne Cox. <laughs> um, and you can find me at JackieCoxNYC on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, and uh, I rarely post on Twitter, so <laughs> go to Instagram. That's probably where you'll find me the most. Got you. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, you guys. This has been so fun. And thank you for listening. Super special thank you to Miss Darling for their song, Young Lovers, which we play on the intro and outro of the podcast. And if you enjoyed and you're listening on 89.1, feel free to listen on Apple Podcasts and everywhere else all over the internet. We really do have some great stuff and we really do encourage you to check it out. Goodbye. Goodbye.